you know when you catch a glimpse of yourself in the mirror and you weren't expecting it and you're like, oh, what the? I don't look like that, right? No, you do, but that's okay. You don't realize that's how you always look and nobody cares. Well, today we're gonna catch ourselves as an MMA community in the mirror and it's not gonna be pretty. In fact, it's gonna be downright ugly because we're gonna see all those things that we normally don't like to see. It's time to take the Instagram filter off the sport and accept that while we love it, flaws and all, as we'll discuss today, there are most definitely some serious issues and uncomfortable realities that, whether you choose to face them regularly as a fan or not, very much exist. Sometimes it's just the nature of the beast, other times it's a reflection of society, and then of course, some of this stuff could maybe change, but that's up to us. I'm Tommy from MMA On Point, and these are 10 uncomfortable truths about MMA. Number 10. Everybody's on steroids. Okay, I know there are people who love to play semantics. Yes, not everyone is on steroids, but you know what I mean and what Nick Diaz meant. All you motherfuckers are on steroids. All you motherfuckers, all you are on steroids. I already know that. We mean the majority. It's not just steroids either, all PEDs. Yes, I don't have hard evidence to support this, but that doesn't mean there haven't been a lot of damning arguments out there. How many times did, did you test Lance during his career? I am estimating that I would have tested him 50 times, 5-0. And never caught him? Correct. I developed and operated the UCLA Olympic Laboratory for 25 years. Do you think that- They were all doping. Every single one of them. Alex Rodriguez, considered one of the best baseball players of all time, was hit with the longest doping suspension in history. Tony Bosch told us Alex Rodriguez became his client in 2010. Bosch says he supplied pro athletes with banned drugs almost 10 years. And then you know the truth about the testing and the flaws. It was almost a cakewalk, actually. A cakewalk yeah. to cheat. One thing we do know is that not everyone gets caught, and the question is how many are getting by. Sure, there are high-profile fighters that have failed tests, but when was the last time a main eventer got pulled from a card? TJ Dillashaw three years ago? He was one of the most tested athletes in UFC history. Did he just start taking EPO when he got caught? Um, the TJ thing, apparently they went and tested his old fight uh, piss with Cody too, and that tested positive for EPO as well. Well, they're still trying to figure out how to detect EPO use, blood transfusions, autologous you can't detect right now at all, except for aberrations in your hematology that can kind of like infer based on longitudinal data that something's off. They still can't even tell. Well, what shocked me is what I'm paying USADA and that that didn't get caught earlier. Do lower tier fighters who get caught more often cheat more than the fighters considerably better than them? What about the rest of the sports world? The NFL has an anti-doping policy and everyone on the field is 300 pounds and can run a 4-3-40. Nobody gets suspended. Experts estimate anywhere from 4 to 39% of pro athletes dope. Is half the UFC roster gone? How is Bellator's doping policies? Testing is ineffective. And so if it is, what incentive is there not to cheat? The love of fairness? This is a business. People are getting hurt out there. There's a famous poll that was conducted by Dr. Gabe Merkin in the 1970s. He asked Olympic level runners, if I could give you a pill that would make you champion, but kill you a year later, would you take it? More than half said yes. The mentality of pro athletes is different than regular folks. With very little risk of being caught and a massive upside to hugely driven people in an ultra competitive sport, the real question becomes why isn't everybody on steroids? And there's no good answer for that. Number nine, serious injuries don't just happen in the UFC. 
We've seen some horrifying leg breaks recently. Too many of them, actually. I can't handle any more ultra slow motion shots of a guy stepping back and realizing that instead of a foot being there, they're landing on a nub. And while those injuries are horrific, the UFC and other major promotions do a pretty good job of taking care of injuries that occur in the cage. But what about all the fighters on the regional scene? What about the ones who never make it to the big time? They're still getting fucked up regularly in order to try to make it to the top. Who's covering their medical expenses? If they fight in the United States, they're paying for their own insurance. And I can personally tell you that gets expensive as hell and hardly covers a damn thing. Oh, I'm paying $500 a month, but my deductible is four grand before my insurance kicks in? Great, so if I have to go to the hospital, I'm basically bankrupt. And if they don't have insurance, the costs are absolutely insane. Why is my x-ray $15,000? Obviously a bit of a joke there, but the point I'm making is that this is the hurt business, and that applies at the lowest level just as much as it does the highest. Fighters on the come-up that get a major injury better hope their day job covers their medical expenses because nobody else is going to. And that's something we forget about these regional stars. These fighters are one disaster away, one bad weight cut, one leg break from having to call it because they can't afford to train anymore. Number 8. The Young Eat the Old in a sport that's built on reputation, on your ability to sell tickets, beating a high-profile opponent is huge. It's everything. Nobody cares if you fought a really tough up-and-comer that nobody's ever heard of before they stepped into the cage that night. But if you beat an aging legend or someone that fans recognize, then you've got yourself a victory that can create some buzz. With matchmaking and MMA being open, these fights are a regular occurrence, and they can be downright nasty. The old being intravenously fed to the young, figuratively pumping their name value right into the veins of the new talent to build them up and make them a bigger draw. Yair Rodriguez versus B. J. Penn, Paulo Costa versus Johnny Hendricks, Francis Ngannou versus Cain Velasquez, and that's just some high-profile fights we're talking about there. Another sad reality of fighting is that oftentimes legends stick around way past their prime on the regional scene in order to make some cash, and that is where some seriously brutal beatdowns can take place. One of the saddest fights you will ever see is King Mo, who was on the come-up, destroying Mark Kerr at M1 Global. It's horrifying to watch, but the formula is tried and true. Watching the new guard take out the old is a tradition in this sport, and while these passing of the torch moments can be painful, for the fans, and especially the older fighters, their effectiveness in boosting the newer talent means these types of bouts are going nowhere. Number 7. Good guys don't always win. I know this may come as a shock to some of you, but there are kind of shitty people in cage fighting, and honestly it's a shame because there are so many just absolutely great folks who are involved in this sport, from top to bottom, be it in the media, the fighters themselves, or people working behind the scenes. Some of the best people I know are involved in this crazy-ass sport, but yeah, there's also a lot of scumbags. Go back and look at our top 10 most evil MMA fighters video from years ago. Truly the stuff of nightmares. But it's not just the most extreme like that. The sport has a long history of fighters with credible domestic violence allegations and convictions, many of whom were given more chances to continue in the sport afterwards. And then there's just the douchebags. Just people being jerks. I don't mean trash talk necessarily, although we have seen plenty of that in poor taste. When you look at John Jones, the greatest fighter of all time, and you see all that he's done, from the outside looking in on MMA, that for many is the expectation of the sport, that a fighter would behave like that, and not the other way around like we would perceive it. I think, too, when you look at someone like Jones or Connor, we as a community have almost become numb to these types of incidents they happen so often. And then of course there's cheating, which is a whole other issue. The good guys don't always win. The bad guys are just as talented and being a bad guy isn't a barrier to success. A reality of life outside the cage as well. Number 6. The MMA media is toothless. I want to start this interview by saying I'm not going to target any particular entity or journalist because this is a problem across the board, so it's irrelevant to the conversation as a whole. Although I will point out some doing the opposite. MMA journalism is largely toothless because so many outlets rely so heavily on access to the fighters and the events, and that access is relegated by either the promotion themselves or the fighters' managers, meaning if you're on the outs with them, you're not getting access. These outlets live and die by click-throughs, and that in and of itself is not any different 
different than the entire internet. People need to make a living, and one of the few ways to make a living online is doing what these websites do for ad revenue. The bigger the audience, the bigger the pay. And what people want to see is fighter interviews. They want access. Now, that's not always the case, but look at how well press conferences do for big fights. People want to know what fighters are doing and thinking on fight week, and in order to give the people what they want, access is required. So you end up with an MMA media that trades in tough questions and investigative journalism for that access. The ability to be at the car, to talk to the fighters. Troublemakers are banned or ostracized. If you piss off the wrong manager, good luck talking to their cadre of fighters. And look at outlets like Bloody Elbow, who do often attempt to create the kind of investigative work that's so often missing from the sport. They are regularly battered on social media by fans, fighters, and promoters alike. The culture of the sport has been molded into one where hardly anyone wants these hard truths to be sought out by these outlets. They're being actively discouraged, in fact. And as a result, we have an MMA media that largely serves more the purpose of a PR firm than of anything resembling journalism. Number five, the toxic fan base. Don't get mad. I'm not talking about you. Unless, of course, I am talking about you. Then yes, you. How dare you? In all seriousness, though, while I would argue a good chunk of the MMA fandom is just a bunch of friendly, fight-loving folks who respect the athletes and don't bother anybody, there are certainly some that choose to do otherwise. Open up the live chat on YouTube for any UFC event that's being streamed and prepare yourself for some of the worst shit you've ever read. What blows my mind is how so much of it is out of context. Like, how did you even get on those topics? But it's not just that. Obviously, chats are a bit of a shit show anyway. Anyway, it's also how kind of a lot of us treat fighters in general. I know it's the norm in all sports to talk trash as a fan, and yes, you paid for your ticket or signed up for Twitter. I'm not saying you can't do it, calm down, but man, some people are just dicks. Why are you replying with the gif of that fighter getting knocked out to every single one of their tweets? Imagine the worst day of your life and someone just constantly reminding you of it that you don't even know. Remember that kid that went up to Rashad Evans and wanted him to sign a picture of Rashad face? How fucked up is that? Or knockout memes in general. I mean, we really lay it on losers as fans. Nothing like a side of humiliation with your concussion. I know, I know, that's the business, they're famous, they knew what they were getting into, I still don't see why we have to be douchebags about it. And then there's the cannibalization. Fans eat each other alive on social media. Certain fighters' fan bases are pretty wild. Talking about you, Connor and Habib, it's not just them, there are tons though, and they will come after you. Don't get me wrong, the MMA fandom is a lot of fun, but sometimes it's like walking into the Mos Eisley Cantina. Number 4. Female Fighter Sexualization I'll never forget watching Felice Herrick break down at her post-fight media scrum after a victory at Fight Night 112. She very candidly had this to say. And, I, and it's hard to see these people who have not been through what I've been through. And they're getting all these opportunities and I, and I see how hard it worked to get here and I'm, it doesn't matter. Because I, I just feel like, well, I'm not, I'm not pretty enough and I'm, I'm not getting any younger, so. I know this entry is going to get a lot of blowback because nobody likes to think that female fighters are overly sexualized, but what you just saw was a very real reaction from someone who felt like their time as a fighter, who's had to market themselves on their sex appeal in order to get opportunities, was fading away. Yes, of course, there are exceptions, but you need only look at the female fighter's social media in order to see the difference in response to a training video or an image in any kind of workout gear compared to their male counterparts. And yes, that's not to say that male fighters don't get sexualized, but to pretend that that is in any way of equal truth is just disingenuous. Sex sells, and all the promotions are well aware of this. It's no secret that the majority of fight fans are men as well. Women have largely always been the subject of objectification in media, and MMA is no different. The fact that there are so many female fighters with OnlyFans pages is a testament to the reality of this sport. And despite the fact that they are being constantly sexualized, these fighters who choose to profit off it then get ostracized for showing off their bodies, the thing thirsty guys were begging them to do in the comments of their Instagram page. Yes, you don't have to be sexy to get opportunities in this sport, but the fact that it can lead to opportunities proves the point. Point. And that really doesn't apply to the men anywhere near as much. 
Number 3. It's a business before it's a sport. As Wu-Tang Clan once said, cash rules everything around me, and that is certainly the case in mixed martial arts. MMA is an entertainment product before it's a sport. Flush them down the toilet like a turd! And what I mean by that is matchups are determined by what will bring in the most money the vast majority of the time and not the merits. The system can accommodate a boring fighter who continues to win, but look at some of the most prominent examples of such fighters. John Fitch had to win eight fights in a row to get his first UFC title opportunity, and despite another five high-profile wins shortly after, he never saw gold again. In fact, he was cut despite having only lost three times in his 18 UFC bouts. Leon Edwards, who has struggled to make a connection to the fans, unbeaten in his last 10 fights. If he loses to his next opponent, who is not the champion, Will he ever get a chance at welterweight gold? Something both Jorge Masvidal and Colby Covington have had two times now against Kamaru Usman. Brock Lesnar fought for the title after a single UFC victory. Chael Sonnen was given a fight against John Jones because it made a good tough season. Conor McGregor's been handed two title fights at lightweight and probably a third to come when he heals up. Now, you can definitely argue that a champ bumping up in weight to compete for a title makes sense, but remember, that was only allowed after Conor did it because they knew it was going to make money. The promoters decide who fights for titles just like pro wrestling. They just don't determine the outcome. Number two, most fighters will retire broke. It's a topic that's always a hot button. There are those on both sides who will get really fired up over it, but let's talk about the reality of fighter pay. Whether you agree with the amounts and think that fighting is an opportunity, not a career, or you feel that the athletes have been getting the shaft since day one, the truth of the matter is that while the guys at the top of the sport are doing well, and we have seen this, we have seen their payouts, it's documentable. Fighters at the top of the UFC and Bellator are regularly getting paid out hundreds of thousands of dollars, but those are the ones who make it to the top, and that is not many of them. There are still fighters in 2021 getting 15K for a UFC, card. Dean Clash, who fought on the Bellator 268 prelims, made $2,000. Nate Diaz was famously making 20 and 20 in his 21st UFC bout before the Conor McGregor fight. TJ Grant retired from MMA because he couldn't afford to train. He was on a five-fight win streak and was meant to fight for a world title. How many times have we seen fighters crying and begging for bonuses after a finish? The vast majority of participants in this sport on a professional level will leave the sport with pretty much nothing to show for it. And that's the reality of it, whether you feel they all deserve more or they don't. Number one, fighters are getting brain damage. This is the biggest thing we don't like to think about because it's possibly the harshest reality that we regularly face. When a fighter gets knocked out, that's a concussion. We love it. It's the most exciting part of the sport. If you KO a bunch of people, it can turn you into a star. But 100% when someone gets knocked unconscious, they are concussed. They can suffer from concussions without being knocked out. That's not even taking into account the smaller impacts on the brain that accumulate over the course of the fight, over the course of a camp, over the course of a career. Bellator fighter Jordan Parsons, who was tragically murdered by a drunk driver in 2016 at just 25 years old, was diagnosed post-mortem with CTE. He only had 13 pro bouts and was just three fights into his career in Bellator. He'd been KO'd once ever. The reality of fighting is that these athletes are getting brain damage, and whether or not we see symptoms after the fact or not, that is the reality of it. And it's often something you see dismissed by people saying, well, they know the risks, these fighters aren't dumb, they're choosing to do this. And while that may very well be the case, it doesn't change the fact that the brain health of fighters is in serious risk every time they step into the cage. A big, big thank you to Ben Rosette, who provided that sweet tune you heard in the intro. Check out his music by clicking the link in the description and go give him a follow on his Instagram and Twitter page at Ben Rosette. Huge shout out to the legendary once and future King Tomas Welsh for editing this video together. Follow him on Instagram at Big Beat Visual. That's beat as in the band from Doug and not a forceful strike. All right, that's all I got for you. Thanks for watching. Please like, subscribe, and have a wonderful day.